Good morning, everyone. Well, today we're going to uh, wrap up our class by talking about Joshua's southern campaign. This is the Confederacy of the Five Amorite Kings. And we're going to see significant types uh, representative of uh, Armageddon, the destruction of the Gogian host, as well as uh, the later conflict that will take place between Babylon the Great and Yahweh. So we will have various aspects of both of those uh, conflicts uh, brought out today in, in Joshua 10. Can someone tell me how the, uh, the Gibeonites came to be in league with Israel at this point in time? Yes. Subtlety or deception. Uh, they appeared that they had come from a great distance. Remember, their clothing was worn. Uh, their wineskins were rent. Their bread was moldy. It appeared that, indeed, they had come from afar. And um, we know that uh, it seems kind of unusual that they would have desired to make this league because we're, we're told in the context of Joshua 10 that they were mighty men. Not only were they mighty, they were also very intelligent <laughs> because their wisdom is demonstrated in the fact that they did not contend with Joshua and Israel. As a matter of fact, they said, we know of your God and what he has done. So they acknowledged Yahweh. Now it's interesting because the Gibeonites, like Rahab, are an excellent symbol for the Gentile ecclesia. And we know that, that many of them became faithful servants and they committed themselves to be indeed servants of Israel. And they fulfilled that responsibility. Uh, as a matter of fact, we know that they were um, uh, serving in David's army. We know also, and that's brought up in First Chronicles 12.4, that after the exile, they returned with Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel and later in, in time with Nehemiah. And they helped repair the wall of, of Jerusalem. This is in Nehemiah 3.7 and 7.25. They also were granted the office of the Nethanim, which means, the word itself means devoted, and they were servants of the Levites. And you'll remember that they committed themselves to be servants, and indeed they fulfilled that responsibility. They were quite faithful in so many ways. Let's go to Joshua, the 10th chapter. And just uh, for the sake of comment, obviously... There were two other campaigns of Joshua. The northern campaign, which you see here, which also has uh, significance. All of uh, these events, of course, do. While literal, they also have a spiritual import. And then the central campaign, but our focus today is going to be uh, on the southern, which involved Gibeon. If you look at the first verse of Joshua 10, let's read that together. Now it came to pass when Adonai Zedek king of Jerusalem. And, and let me stop for a moment. Have we seen a similar term to this before? Adonai Zedek. He was the king of Jerusalem, which was Jebus at this point in time. Um, and was there another king that we read of in Genesis 14? Brother Andy? Yes, so it is. It is Melchizedek. Um, and quite a contrast, however, to Melchizedek, king, priest, king of Salem. Uh, and in this context, Adonai Zedek, the name has been changed to ruler of righteousness, or the title, ruler of righteousness, or lord of righteousness. Not faithful whatsoever. The city was completely apostate, obviously, uh, not characteristic of, of Melchizedek. So we see quite a contrast there, and, and I think that's indeed intended. Also in Adonai Zedek, we see a reflection of the papacy itself uh, and the pontiff himself in Adonai Zedek. A semblance of righteousness without righteousness. So the general account here uh, speaks of Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem. He had heard how Joshua had taken Ai and had utterly destroyed it, as he had done to Jericho and her king, so he had done to Ai and her king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them. 
And we said there were only two uh, occasions where the Lord was displeased with Joshua, one being in the fact that he did not inquire of the Lord uh, before advancing in the first instance uh, towards Ai, and as a result, they were defeated. And, uh, of course, the second time that he was displeased with Joshua was in the case of Gibeon. He allowed himself to be deceived, once again, not inquiring of Yahweh. Uh, continuing on, it says that, that they feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city. So we can see why Adonai Zedek was concerned about what was transpiring, because if Joshua and Israel had control of Gibeon, they had control of the land, certainly the southern portion of the land, because they had to come through the, the uh, pass of Beth Horon, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But here's Gibeon, here's Jerusalem. It was only seven miles between Gibeon and Jerusalem. So I think we can see why Adonai Zedek would be concerned because he's the next one in line. And in an effort to, to fend off Israel, he calls the, uh, the other kings uh, to uh, Jebus or to Jerusalem for this conference. He says that they feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city as one of the royal cities. And there was really not a king in Gibeon. There were four cities that were in league in this area. He says, and because it was greater than Ai, and all the men thereof were mighty. All the men thereof were mighty. So as we said, Adonai Zedek here is very much typical of the papacy, which claims to be God's vicar upon earth. We know that they have corrupted the teaching of Christ, and there is no truth. Adonai Zedek had nothing to do with faith or beliefs, uh, such as the original Melchizedek. We know also, as we've been discussing all week, that Joshua was a type of Christ and going to war to destroy Adonai Zedek. And at the second coming of Christ, he will war with the papal system until it is destroyed. If you'll go to Psalm, uh, second Psalm with me, please. And unfortunately, this morning we do not have time to cover every scripture that we'd like to, so we'll uh, try to touch upon some key ones. Psalm 2, and let's uh, read verses 6 through 9. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost part of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Let's go also while we're here to Psalm 110. Beginning at verse 1. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power and the beauty and the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning thou hast to do of thy youth. Significance, it talks here about the womb of the morning. Uh, Yesterday, we didn't get to it, but uh, when they came against, um, actually in in the conquest of Jericho, when they came against the city, it was at the dawn of the day. And And once again, I don't think that's without significance. Speaking of that new day, uh, that new order of things that Christ will establish, uh, that when the Son of Righteousness shall arise. And we're going to talk about that in, in a little more detail as we progress today. Continuing on, it says, The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill the uh, places with the dead bodies. He shall wound the heads over many countries. And here I think we see a reflection of Genesis 3.15. He shall wound the heads over many countries. He shall drink of the brook in the way. Therefore shall he lift up 
the head. Just as Joshua lifted up the heads of these five Amorite kings. Adonai Zedek took the initiative in organizing the Canaanite tribes in this area. The people of, of Jerusalem had heard about Ai, as we just read, how they had destroyed Jericho, and about the Gibeonites. And we can certainly understand, at, at this point in time, their apprehension and their fear. These are the names of the five Amorite kings. Let's go back to Joshua 10. Picking up at verse 3. Wherefore Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent unto Hoham, king of Hebron, and unto Piram, king of Jarmuth, and unto Japhia, king of Lachish, and unto Deborah, king of Eglon, saying, Come up unto me, and help me, that we may smite Gibeon, for it hath made peace with Joshua and with the children of Israel. And of course, all of these uh, kingdoms would be vulnerable to Israel, and so they readily um, r- respond to, to the words of, of Adonai Zedek, and they come to Jebus or to Jerusalem. Uh, now, that's an interesting point because it's very similar to those who have come to Rome and consort with Rome. And we see this all the time. Um, we see uh, the President of the U.S. visiting uh, the Vatican. We see countless uh, ambassadors. We see individuals like Putin. We see, you know, so it's astounding that uh, they garner as much um, focus as they do, that is, the papacy. And if um, you'll look at Revelation 18 and verse 9. I think you can see the parallel here. Revelation 18 and verse 9. And see if this isn't true. And the kings of the earth who have committed fornication and lived deliciously with her shall bewail her and lament for her when they shall see the smoke of her burning because of the association that exists with Babylon the Great. Now look at these names. Adonai Zedek, who was the king of Jebus or Jerusalem. Uh, Does anyone know what Jebus means? I'm going to get to it in just a minute, but it actually means trodden down. What about Jerusalem? What does it mean? Right. The city of peace or vision of peace. Quite a contrast between Jebus and Jerusalem. Uh, I, I think for our purposes, we want to think more in terms of Adonai Zedek being the king of Jebus. Hoham, king of Hebron, whom Yahweh impels. Aram, is, uh, the king of Jarmuth, or Jarmuth a wild ass. Japhia, king of Lachish, means splendid. Eber, king of Eglon, is sanctuary. And there is, here again, another significance in the fact that if we look at these five kings together, I think we can come up with a statement that is appropriate from the names of the Amorite kings. Whom Yahweh impels as a wild ass They are splendid in their sanctuary, believing themselves to be rulers according to their own standards of righteousness. And certainly this would characterize the Canaanites throughout the land, their disposition, their attitudes. uh, And we know it is a direct reflection of the kingdom of sin or the kingdom of men, which the, the Lord shall very shortly bring into subjection. Here are the names of the cities of these kings. Jebus means trodden down. Hebron, a community or alliance. Jarmuth, elevation or height. And Lachish means invincible. It's interesting because uh, it was believed that nothing could penetrate Lachish. And we're told in Joshua 10 that on the second day, Joshua and Israel took the city. It means invincible. Eglon, calf-like. Now, if we put those together in a statement as we did the names of the five Amorite kings, we have the combined communities of the Gentiles are allied together. Kingdom of men, the kingdom of sin. 
believing that they attain to great heights and that they are invincible, whereas in reality they are weak as calves in their opposition to Yahweh and will be trodden down by him. And we're moving kind of quickly, but uh, the slides will all be available to you as well. And here is um, a kind of a summary of what transpires with Gibeon. The, uh, these five Amorite kings, this southern confederacy, headed by Adonai Zedek. And isn't it interesting that he, the ruler of righteousness, the lord of righteousness, is at the head of this confederacy. Again, not unlike the papacy or the royal pontiff in the age to come. Notice the sequence here, and we'll try to follow it through. So you can see this slide. The kings of Jerusalem, these five kings, they encamp before Gibeon and make war against it. And this is up here at uh, number one. The Gibeonites send to Joshua for Gilgal, uh, to Gilgal for help. Now, um, why would Joshua honor this league, this agreement? They had made it through deception. Um, was there any reason for Joshua to, uh, to respond to this request? Yeah, he gave his word. He made the commitment. And we see him being true to that word. And so what he does is he uh, brings the men of war down uh, to, uh, from Gilgal over to, uh, or up to Gibeon. Let's see if we can go back to our map here. I think you can, well, you can see it here fairly well. Uh, and, of course, they had to come from Gilgal, a little bit uh, northeast. And does anybody know what the distance was? You see various distances quoted. It's somewhere between 17 and 25 miles. I think we could safely say it was at least 20 miles from Gilgal uh, to Gibeon. And what did Joshua do? They marched all night. We're told that they marched all night. Can you imagine that? And then they encountered the enemy. Uh, this confederacy first thing in the morning. Now, they obviously would have had to, to have been very physically fit individuals. We know that with God all things are possible and the hand of Yahweh was involved in this. But the children of Israel uh, would have had uh, the physical prowess to be able to do this. And not only, and, and the day was extended as we're going to talk about, not only did they make this trek of 20 miles, they confronted the enemy, they fought all day. The day was extended. They followed them through the, bath, uh, through the passage of, of uh, Beth Horon, and, uh, which uh, is an interesting event, one of the greatest battles that, that's ever been uh, in recorded history. And they uh, fled uh, south, and, of course, Israel uh, pursued them. And that's probably another 20 miles south, if not better. So we're looking at 40 to 50 miles of travel in addition to engaging in battle. Just imagine what was transpiring. Now, continuing on here, overnight Joshua comes to their assistance. Yahweh fights for Israel in the valley of Ajalon, and it's uh, a very emphatic point that more individuals died of the hailstones than died by the edge of the sword, which points out to us, of course, that Yahweh was the determining factor. And Israel clearly understood that. That's where their faith was. Now, I think we also have an illustration in this because there's a, uh, sometimes there's this discussion that revolves around, will Yahweh, in the age to come, will Yahweh accomplish all of these things on his own and Christ and the saints be held in abeyance, if you will, until that's all accomplished? Or will they be participative? Or will they do it all themselves? I think we have... Uh, a type here in what transpires within uh, the Battle of Beth Horon, and that is that it will be both. You know, Yahweh will intervene, but Christ and his sanctified ones will also be participative in those battles. So I think we have a, a very clear illustration of that in the events that took place here uh, with uh, the um, destruction of the, of the five Amorite kings. Uh, Joshua slays the kings at Makeda. Not sure about the pronunciation there, but at Makeda. And we see how that again relates back to Genesis 3.15 and the crushing of the serpent's head. Yahweh delivers Libna into the hand of Israel. Lachish is destroyed in the same manner. Horam, king of Gezer, comes up to help Lachish. 
but he is also smitten in that process. Eglon's destroyed. Joshua fights against Hebron and takes it. He returns to Deber and takes it. And after smiting all the hill country, uh, it says that, uh, the, that they were in the mountains. It's really talking about the hill country. Uh, far and wide and utterly destroying all that breathe, Joshua returns to, to Gilgal. There's one point, uh, there's a, a verse that we'll get to here in Joshua 10 that says that uh, Joshua returned to Gilgal during this process and then came back to Makeda. Uh, the Septuagint actually leaves that verse entirely out. I don't think Joshua went back to Gilgal. I think he pursued uh, them to Makeda um, and, uh, and destroyed the five kings. Any questions, comments? I know I've been moving pretty quickly, but I wanted to uh, make sure that we had uh, gotten through uh, the basic events. So Joshua ascended from Gilgal, as you see here. As a matter of fact, this, uh, this might show it even a little better. And it is indeed ascended because it was it was much um, higher ground. So not only were they traveling a distance of 20 miles before they came uh, into contact with with the enemy, but this was uphill, so to speak. Uh, as a matter of fact, let's let's just take a look. This would be very typical terrain that they were covering. Can you imagine that? 20 miles, and then the confrontation. I think we'll leave this one up. So Joshua ascended from Gilgal with his army, and he received assurance from Yahweh that they would be victorious. Let's look at the. Uh, let's look at verse uh, seven. So Joshua ascended from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. Verse 8. And the Lord said unto Joshua, Fear them not, for I have delivered them into thine hand. There shall not a man of them stand before thee. Joshua therefore came unto them suddenly and went up from Gilgal all night. There was no complaint on the part of Israel of weariness. They were focused on the things of the Spirit, fulfilling the will of Yahweh. Let's go to 2 Timothy, 2nd chapter. Second Timothy 2, verse 3. And look at the admonition to us as servants of the deity. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Let's flip back over to the first chapter of Second Timothy. Verse 8. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. Be thou, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel, according to the power of God. And in the fourth chapter, in verse 5, But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. We know, of course, that, that uh, we receive no promise in coming into covenant relationship that life would be easy. In contrast, we know that it would be uh, challenging, that it would be the Lord would be requiring of us. And through much tribulation, as we mentioned yesterday, we must enter the kingdom of God. Joshua's army was coming from the east, and he attacked in the early morning with the sun behind him. And so what would have been the condition for the enemy at this point in time? Coming from the east, the sun would be right in their eyes. They would be blinded. Where are they coming from? They're coming from the east. Once again, do we see any parallel to the coming of the Messiah 
and the fulfillment uh, of Yahweh's intention in the earth. Absolutely, because he will uh, come from the east. And we're going to, to uh, look at this in a little more detail. And I know there's some different thinking as to, uh, as to the meaning of these verses. Um, but I think we, at least for me, I've uh, concluded um, that it's speaking, when it speaks of the kings of the east, uh, it's speaking of the kings out of the sun's rising. And of course that's what Brother Thomas says, uh, and I think he happens to be right in that. Uh, because of all the things that we have seen even earlier in Joshua. When did these things happen? At the dawning of the day. Where are they coming from uh, to engage the battle? They are coming from the east. Uh, quite, a, quite a significance in that. The incident provides a remarkable type, a remarkable type of the future activities among the nations by the greater Joshua. The sixth vial of the apocalypse is now being poured out. And the major event of the sixth vial is the preparation of the way of the kings far from a sun's rising. Let's go to Revelation 16:12. Again, I appreciate the fact that there are differences of thinking as to what this passage means. But for me, I subscribe to this understanding. Revelation 16 and verse 12. And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river, Euphrates, or the drying up of the Ottoman power, the Euphratian power. And the water thereof was dried up, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. Or the kings who are from a sun's risings. Or the kings who come out of the east is another translation. The kings, I believe, are immortalized spiritual Israelites who will, with Christ, conquer the earth. Please turn with me to Revelation 5 and verses 9 and 10. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Let's go to Psalm 82 and verse 8. And some of these passages we actually have read in earlier classes. Psalm 82 and verse 8. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all nations. Let's go back to Joshua, the 10th chapter. Verse 10. And the Lord discomfited them before Israel and slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon. They were confused at this point in time. It says, And he chased them along the way that goeth up to Beth Horon and smote them to Azekah and to Makeda. The greater Joshua will likewise confound the nations when he will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel, as we read uh, Psalm 2, verse 9. The Israelites chased them. Uh, Adonai Zedek would have been coming from the southeast, and the others attacked from the southwest, and they tried to escape. But Yahweh pursued them to Beth Horon and harassed them as far as we read here, Azekah and Makeda. Let's see if we can... Uh, of course, here they are uh, at Gibeon. The bat at the pass of Beth Horon is in this area. They pursued them down this way through the Valley of Ajalon. And let's see if we can... Here you see Beth Horon up from Gibeon. This, again, was a critical, a strategic passage for them to get into the southern part of the land. And this is why Adonai Zedek and the rest of the kings were 
were so preoccupied with, with preserving that security. Uh, and so they were defending the, uh, the past of Beth Horan. Uh, let's see if we can find a slide here that shows us. Yes. Here is, there's um, Upper Beth Horan and Lower Beth Horan. Uh, the pass actually dropped uh, about 600 feet from the top to the bottom. This was about five miles from Gibeon. So they had chased them to uh, the pass of Beth Horan, and they're fighting with them, pushing them down into Lower Beth Horan, or in essence, down the passage, which would have made it even more difficult because they were trying to contend as they were being off balance and moved downhill uh, through the passage. Uh, in addition, what transpired there in the Pass of Beth Horan? What else happened? The hailstones. And this is when Yahweh rained down the hailstones, uh, which we'll read of here just in a moment. And of course, as it says, more died through the hailstones. Uh, look at verse 11. And it came to pass as they fled from before Israel and were in the going down to Beth Horan, that the Lord cast down great stones from heaven. And this, uh, uh, this the term for Beth Horan, actually the definition of Beth Horan is the house of hollowness. The house of hollowness. And what was to be uh, you know, the, the source of their, their protection ends up being uh, a hollow, um, uh, certainly a, a, you know, a hollow uh, foundation for them because they were ultimately destroyed. Many of them destroyed right there in the, the pass of Beth Horan, and the rest were pursued. Some did make it back to the fence cities, but um, many, many were destroyed. It says, And the, the Lord cast down great stones from heaven unto them, unto Azekah, and they died. They were more which died with hailstones than they whom the children of Israel slew with the sword. So once again, I, I think we have uh, a very good type here of what will transpire in the kingdom age. Yahweh and Christ and the saints working collectively or working in concert to bring about the will of Yahweh in the earth. I apologize. I pause once in a while because I'm kind of jumping around to make sure we cover uh, as much as we as we can this morning. So um, you know, we see here that uh, Yahweh's intervention, uh, illustrated by the hailstones, is again very similar to what we see and will see transpire within the uh, within the kingdom age. In Revelation 16, verse 21, let's go back there for a moment. Revelation 16 and verse 21. And here the great hail is actually a picture of the, the redeemed themselves. Verse 21. And there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, for the plague thereof was exceeding great. And I think here truly we have a picture of of the saints uh, in activity, bringing about the subjugation of the nations. We know that uh, at this time, um, uh, the first uh, conflict that will take place in the kingdom age will be with the Gogian host, or at Armageddon, uh, and then ultimately with uh, Babylon the Great as well. Joshua asked at this point in time that the day be extended and perhaps uh, this does indeed rank uh, amongst the most unusual, unique, uh, miraculous events that are, uh, that's recorded, that are recorded in the, in the scriptures. Uh, in essence, the day stood still. The day was lengthened. He asked that the sun not set, in other words. Let's continue on in, in Joshua 10. Verse 12, Then spake Joshua to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand thou still upon Gibeon, and thou moon in the valley of Ajalon. 
And the sun stood still, and the moon stayed, until the people had avenged themselves upon their enemies. So there wasn't enough time to execute these judgments fully. And uh, Joshua here appeals to Yahweh and asks for the day, the day to be extended. And indeed, asking in faith, it was fulfilled. The antitypical sun and moon. And we know that the sun is a representation of Christ. The moon, uh, his bride, the redeemed. Uh, we know that it is also representative of, in the case of the sun, the government. The, um, the fact that it will be um, a, a truly divine government in the age to come. And there will be ecclesiastical aspects or religious aspects as well as governmental. So we see both the political and the ecclesiastical in the sun and the moon. And they shall shine continuously throughout the millennial day of Yahweh for a thousand years. The antitypical Joshua will control sin and the last enemy we're told that will be destroyed uh, is death. Let's go to Revelation, 22nd chapter. Excuse me, chapter 21, let's pick up at verse 22. Revelation 21, verse 22. Because I think we have a relationship here to the extended day of Joshua and what we see in the kingdom age itself. And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it. And the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. And I think this very event here, with even though we're talking about war and conflict and destruction, is pointing to that day when these conditions would exist in the earth. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be, interestingly, there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. We know that light is necessary for victory over sin. Go to Psalm 36. Psalm 36 and verse 9. For with thee is the, fount is the fountain of life. In thy light shall we see light. Let's go to Psalm 119 while we're in Psalms. Very familiar verse, verse 105. 119, 105. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The day was waning away in the context here of Joshua. They called upon the Lord to lengthen the day, to not allow the sun to set. And we are rapidly approaching that time when the sun will indeed no longer set, but there will be ultimately complete righteousness in the earth after the Lord brings the nation's under his control. And certainly at the end of the millennial reign of Christ, there will be complete and complete perfection in that God will be all and in all. Let's go to Ephesians, the fifth chapter. Ephesians 5. Verse 8. For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. But now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. 
And we know that only as a result of walking as, as children of light can we be participative uh, in this dawning of a new day, this day that will characterize the kingdom age. Christ, in the judgment of Armageddon, will first destroy the alliance of the nations, just as Joshua destroyed the alliance or the confederacy of these five kings. And this will be done at Jerusalem. Then there will be the attack of the north country or north territory as there was in the case of Joshua. Joshua may, um, Joshua will at this point in time bring the earth, that is the greater Joshua, bring the earth under the control of Yahweh. We know that the five kings fled, going back to Joshua 10, picking up at verse 14. And there was no day like that before it or after it that the Lord hearkened unto the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. And Joshua returned and all Israel with him into the camp to Gilgal. And this verse 15, uh, as I mentioned, I think is probably spurious in that it shouldn't be in there. I don't think he returned to Gilgal at this point. But these five kings fled and hid themselves in a cave at Makeda. And it was told Joshua, saying, The five kings are found hid in a cave at Makeda. And Joshua said, Roll great stones upon the mouth of the cave, and set men by it for to keep them. Isn't it interesting? Where did they seek refuge? In the earth. The things of the earth. And this is where they were solely focused. And as a result, they had no hope. And it was told Joshua, saying, The five kings are found and hid in a cave at Mekita. And Joshua said, You know, to seal it up, to hold them in abeyance. The latter-day Joshua will cause many to flee in fear. Let's go to Isaiah, the second chapter. Because here again we see many parallels to the antitypical Joshua. Isaiah 2, beginning at verse 19. And they shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth for fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty when he ariseth to shake terribly the earth. And that day a man shall cast his idols of silver and his idols of gold which they made each one for himself to worship to the moles and to the bats to go into the clefts of the rocks and into the tops of the ragged rocks for fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty when he ariseth to shake terribly the earth. Cease ye from man whose breath is in his nostrils, or wherein is he to be accounted of? Following the victory at Armageddon, like we see here, because these some did escape uh, and, and fled back to their fenced cities, in the latter-day conflict that will take place at Armageddon, the remnants will reassemble under the leadership of the false prophet or the Pope. Let's turn to Revelation 17, verses 13 and 14. These have one mind and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. These shall make war with the Lamb and the Lamb shall overcome them for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. Going back to Joshua 10, we know that the cave was opened and the kings were brought out. It says, And it came to pass when Joshua and the children, verse 20, children of Israel had made an end of slaying them with a very great slaughter till they were consumed. These are the individuals they were pursuing that the rest which remained of them entered into fenced cities. And all the people returned to the camp to Joshua at Makeda in peace. None moved his tongue against any of the children of Israel. Then said Joshua, Open the mouth of the cave, and bring out those five kings unto me out of the cave. And they did so, and brought forth those five kings unto him out of the cave, the king of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon. And we uh, know that five signifies, as we've discussed earlier, grace. We see the grace of Yahweh in bringing these events to pass as he will do so in the age to come. 
He told the captains of Israel. These were special men, the captains of Israel, reflective of the saints of the redeemed, to put their feet on the necks of these kings. In Israel, there was a great victory over the Canaanites, very much a type of the, uh, to be fulfilled relative to Genesis 3.15. Uh, let's turn there real quickly, because we know that it is this conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman uh, that has been the condition throughout the ages. But soon, the head of the serpent will be crushed. And it will be completely crushed at the end of the millennial reign of Christ. Uh, Genesis 3.15. Oh, we don't need to turn, it, turn to it. We could all quote it. But now I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It or he shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Speaking, obviously, specifically of Christ and the destruction of sin. Let's go to Psalm 18, verse 40. Psalm 18, and verse 40. Thou hast also given me the necks of mine enemies. Thou hast also given me the necks of mine enemies, that I might destroy them that hate me. Let's go to Malachi, the fourth chapter. Malachi 4 and verse 3. And ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. In the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts, or the Lord of armies. Going back to Joshua 10. Verse 24, And it came to pass when they brought out those kings unto Joshua, that Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said unto the captains of the men, the men of war, which went with them, Come near and put your feet upon the necks of these kings. And they came near and put their feet upon the necks of them. And Joshua said unto them, Fear not, nor be dismayed. Notice the counsel. Be strong, that is, be firm, and of good courage. Be confident. Maintain your faith. For thus shall the Lord do to all your enemies against whom ye fight. And afterward Joshua smote them and slew them and hanged them on five trees. And they were hanging upon the trees until the evening. And it came to pass at the time of the going down of the sun that Joshua commanded them. They took them down off the trees and cast them into the cave wherein they had been hid and laid great stones in the cave's mouth which remain until this very day. And that day Joshua took Makeda and smote it with the edge of the sword and the king thereof he utterly destroyed them and all the souls that were therein. He let none remain, and he did to the king of Makeda as he did unto the king of Jericho. And the rest of the chapter focuses, of course, on the uh, conquest of the various cities. So we see, uh, ultimately, uh, the head of the serpent being crushed or destroyed by the greater Joshua in the age to come. We also see Joshua fulfilling uh, the requirements of the Mosaic Law and uh, taking their bodies off the trees and actually burying them at the end of the day. If you'll turn to uh, Hebrews, the fourth chapter with me. We only have just a, just a few minutes. And before we uh, wrap up with some concluding verses here, any uh, comments, questions before we do? Yes, put it in. Yes. Yes. Right. There was, I'm sure that um, it was, there was no one that lived through that where the hailstones, uh, you know, were, uh, you know, were prevalent. I mean, obviously they, they wouldn't have, wouldn't have made it. Um, and once again, why do you think that was the case? Why do we see Yahweh intervening uh, in that capacity? What would be the purpose? What was it demonstrating to the nation of Israel? Power. Right, the power of God, that God was indeed in, in control. It was not through the arm of flesh 
that they had accomplished those things, but rather through the power of God. So there is another way of looking at power. And uh, because of the weight of the spirit monastery system, they were able to we see that stage being set as we experience what we do uh, even at present. Uh, if, you'll, uh, if you haven't done so already, turn to Hebrews, the fourth chapter, and I'd like to, to close with these verses. And I think I'd really like to, to start um, with the uh, last couple of verses of the previous chapter. And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest? Because what we're talking about with Joshua, of course, leading the children of Israel into the land of promise is entering that rest, entering that, uh, their jubilee as we pray that we will enter uh, the jubilee in the age to come, that we will be participative in that promise, that rest. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief, and unbelief in this context means a lack of faith. As we discussed earlier with the children of Israel, how far away were they from the promised land? They were 11 days journey before entering into the land of promise, and yet they wandered in the wilderness 38 years because of unbelief, a lack of faith. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached, as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest. Seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. Again he limiteth a certain day, saying in David, Today, after so long a time, as it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. For if Jesus had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that has entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works, as God did from his. Let us labor therefore to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. Thank you.